0: Today I am speaking again with the great Douglas Murray. Douglas is an associate editor at the Spectator and he writes for many other publications including the Sunday Times, Standpoint and the Wall Street Journal. He's given talks at the British and European Parliaments as well as at the White House. He is a truly inspired debater. I've never had the pleasure of being on a debate stage with him but it would be an honor and He is the author of a wonderful new book, which we discussed in the last podcast, titled The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam. And at the outset of this podcast, I wound up addressing what is currently the most popular question on my Ask Me Anything page. I was going to save that for my next AMA episode, but it just made more sense to work through it here with Douglas. So here's the question. What are your thoughts regarding the Charlottesville incident? Please address the many aspects, i.e. the rioting, the media coverage, the individual groups present, Antifa, BLM, Trump statements, etc. So Douglas and I get fairly deep into that and to related topics like identity politics, guilt by association, and then we finally move on to the topics that had been left out of our prior discussion of his book topics such as the source of Western values, the problem of finding meaning in a secular world, and related issues. Douglas is really one of my favorite people to speak with, and he's doing very courageous work on the topic of Islam and Islamism in particular. Like many people doing that work, he is often unfairly maligned, but he really is one of the most thoughtful people you could ever hope to meet. So it is indeed a great pleasure to once again bring you Douglas Murray. I am here with Douglas Murray. Douglas, thanks for coming back on the podcast.
1: It's a great pleasure, Sam.
0: So we were all set to talk about questions of human values and their link to tradition. Uh, I think we were going to kind of stumble upon the the glories of the Sistine Chapel. (laughs) having already talked about Islam and immigration and all of that, terrorism, et cetera, to our heart's content and to the, the laceration of our audience. But now we have some major news events threatening to derail us. We have um, neo-Nazis marching and committing murders in Charlottesville. We have another terrorist atrocity in Europe, this time in Barcelona. And then I think just in the last hour or so, there are reports from Finland of a stabbing. Maybe you have more information than I do. You're you're in the time zone. It just doesn't stop, Douglas.
1: Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, it just goes on and on. And uh, as we've said before, I mean, the thing is that the some of the facts vary, but I mean, not very much. Um, and uh, it, you know, it's it's sort of hard to ever find anything new to say about it. Although sometimes new people, you know, discover the facts about it and get new opinions, but there's not much variation in all this, as you know.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's, there's some new ground to cover with respect to Charlottesville. And I, I think having you on the podcast for this could be perfect, although we, obviously we didn't plan to talk about this. But let's start with Charlottesville and Trump and, and the, the heat he's getting for his response to it, because I'm in hot water here with at least the moral imbecile wing of my audience. <laughs> for a, a tweet I sent out uh, right after Charlottesville. I, I, I wrote, quoting myself now on Twitter, in 2017, all identity politics is detestable, but surely white identity politics is the most detestable of all. Seeing the, the absolutely cretinous response to that, I added, the necessary context, of course, is the last 200 years of human history. So I think it's, it's perfect to debrief with you over this because your, your bona fides as someone who is worrying about immigration are, are impeccable, obviously. And there's no doubt there are people in the world or even in our audience who worry that you may be a white supremacist uh, or be, be motivated by racism. So I want to kind of walk through this. And, and if there's any point where you disagree, I'll be very interested to hear it. But let me just clarify what I was saying about identity politics here, because the point strikes me as absolutely obvious, but given the response, it is clearly not obvious to some people. Just to give you the predictable response, I've been accused of virtue signaling in the most abject way. This is kind of reverse racism, you know, so racism against white people is okay, or you can only be racist if you're white. I hate white people. Something in that genre just came to me in torrents. So let me just clarify this and then see if you disagree. So just as not all religions are the same, you know, I have much more to say against Islam than I have against Anglicanism, though I, I can find something to say about Anglicanism. And I have much less to say against Buddhism. I think there's you know, there are wonderful things in Buddhism, although I, I have negative things to say about it as a religion. There are differences here. And so too with identity politics. Not all identity politics are the same, and they're certainly not the same with respect to the context in which they're being practiced in history. I mean, mean, if you were practicing German identity politics in London in 1950, well, then you deserve to have the shit kicked out of you, right? I mean, this is just, you know, and and the, the same could be true for, you know, Japanese identity politics in Nanking. And if you compare that to black identity politics in alabama in 1964 which i think most sane people would acknowledge was not only morally understandable but morally and politically necessary right i mean that is identity politics aka the the civil rights movement in america now my tweet was actually fairly carefully written. I mean, it's, it, it starts with, you know, in 2017, all identity politics is detestable. And of course, I'm thinking about the West, and I'm thinking primarily about America. I was commenting on Charlottesville. And I believe this. I, you know, I think Black Lives Matter is a dangerous and divisive and retrograde movement. And it is a dishonest movement. I mean, it's not to say that everyone associated with it is dishonest. But I find very little to recommend in in what I've seen from Black Lives Matter. I think it is the wrong move for African Americans to be organizing around the variable of race. Now it's obviously the wrong move. It's obviously destructive to civil society. But let me just say that black identity politics in the U.S. in 2017 is still totally understandable. I think it's misguided, but I think it's completely understandable. And in certain local cases perhaps even defensible. What is not understandable, generally speaking, is white identity politics in the U.S. in 2017. I mean, you've got pampered doughboys like Richard Spencer who have never been the victim of anything except now the consequences of his own stupidity. And now he gets punched as a a Nazi because people mistake him for a Nazi, though he doesn't think he's a Nazi and perhaps he isn't a Nazi. But you have white nationalists and white supremacists marching in the company of actual Nazis and members of the KKK, and and that is aligning themselves with people who actually celebrate Adolf Hitler and and the murder of millions of people, right? And th- so this is not the same thing as Black Lives Matter, and it's not the same thing as even Antifa. These goons who attack them and you know, perhaps got attacked in turn. It's hard to sort out who started it there. And I've got nothing good to say about. Antifa these people are have been attacking people all over the country and uh, they're responsible for a lot of violence I think it's a dangerous organization but it doesn't have the same genocidal ideology of actual Nazis right so that you you have to make distinctions here and all identity politics is not the same so I guess I'm just wondering do you disagree with any of that
1: I think I have a slightly different take on it I mean I mean I agree with most of what you just said I I think there are several things. One is that I think it's inevitable that if identity politics runs riot rampant in, among one group of people, it's, it's, it's almost always going to cause a counterforce. Um, I, in my latest book, In the Strange Death of Europe, I, I mention how it's quite hard to see how you don't get, you know, nasty white identity politics at some stage, as a response to nasty identity politics of other kinds, or in other words, I think, as I say at one point, you, 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 it, it's not in the long term sustainable that everyone's allowed to do it on the basis of their skin pigmentation, apart from people of one skin pigmentation. It's sort of—it's just hard to imagine how that would be sustainable in the long term. Although I agree with you, there 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 are ebbs and flows in history of when you would legitimately have a, a, a cause among one group and and then it would diminish and so on. And I think there there, there are two other things. One, one is that it's very hard once you go down this route to know when to stop. And it's not just a personal judgment, is it? Because it's it relies on the goodwill of everybody else from your background or or, or of the same skin pigmentation. I mean it 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 means that you you're not going to have an opportunist on your side. Well, you know, we all know human nature. You always have you always have hucksters, and you always have opportunists, and you always have people who, who, as I often say, remain on the barricades even after the battle is won because they don't have a home to go to other than the barricades. And that phenomenon is going to happen, and I think it's it's been happening in a whole set of of rights claims in recent years. And and I think I suppose thirdly that the I don't entirely agree. I agree with you. I mean, I can't see why somebody like uh, uh, Richard Spencer could. Ever be regarded as having a sort of, as you say, a legitimate, you know, grievance, as it were. Um, not that there's any legitimate grievance that could could permit somebody going down into those fetid byways, anyway. But, but I I, I disagree that it, it that it's not possible that, as it were, um, a, a white person somewhere in the states or some people might be feeling some aggravation. And I don't, as again, again, I mean, I'm I'm talking this much like you in the in the issue of context to do with particular groups at this moment in time and let me you know throw out the obvious one i can see how um a white american uh in a you know former steel town without a job and with all the same sort of lack of prospects as people of other skin colors in the area and so on also on top of all of that has to endlessly hear from the media and from a lot of rich kids at universities the claim that he has got white privilege, and him feeling, you know, particularly at this moment in time, particularly disgruntled about that. Now, as I say, all of this to, to, to my mind is 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 just it's just horrible, horrible terrain, which I, I just wish we weren't collectively stuck on. I mean, I mean, of course, we agreed on that; it's sort of too obvious to say. But, but I say it because I have to say, as an outsider looking at America it does seem to me that you're driving yourselves mad at the moment and one of the ways in which you're driving yourselves mad is in this way in which you you went towards something which i thought was the purpose and the dream within america the dream after the civil rights uh, achievements and so on which was uh, which now seems to me to be being thrown away and and almost bungee jump going back from uh, after after the moment of progress and I think that this is happening because people are going down the whole avenue of this identity politics in general. I see it everywhere in the States, on everything. And I've never heard, I mean, I've never heard, you know, the only one I can claim to have any legitimate kind of personal insight into is the sort of gay identity politics. I've never seen people at such a a pitch of, of illegitimate agitation. And I don't know why they're doing it.
0: Again, I fully agree, and this is why you know I I would say that all identity politics is toxic at this point. Now, again, there are local cases where this almost certainly isn't true. I mean, if you're going to tell me that the Rohingya Muslims need to practice some identity politics against the murderous Buddhists in Myanmar, okay, fine, you know, I'll sign that waiver. But generally speaking, in in developed societies where civil society is or was well-established, where you have norms of a kind of universal political argumentation where the color of your skin is irrelevant to the position you are arguing for or should be, must be to be persuasive. Identity politics is a disaster. And yes, as, as you say, the light was just fully visible at the end of the tunnel here. And we've had, you know, we had a two-term black president if we can't secure that as a as a durable gain for civil rights, what the hell is going on right
1: exactly and the Secretary of state and 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 so on but i you see i think I think this thing about as it were it's not just about where you individually or I individually or any other individual holds it it's the fact that there there are always going to be people who for short term political gain, do not want to exercise the same standards you know there will always be somebody who 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 wants to who feels that, you know, they haven't had a fair enough, you know, go at things and or they just want more or they want to be famous or they want to be rich or, or, or something. They want to lead a crowd. And and they will claim that it doesn't matter that, you know, we've had a two term black president. The whole country is still institutionally racist and we're only minutes away from slavery again. There's always going to be this, and there's always going to be a, a reward for those people it seems to me, in, in, in the situation that we are, or you are in America, setting up for yourselves.
0: Yeah. Well, so let me just, uh, again, reiterate that I agree with you that in certain cases, even white identity politics is understandable here. Again, if you're, you're talking about people who have been kind of passed over by the new economy and are, in, in addition to finding it difficult to get a job, they're being told that it's good that it's more difficult for white people, given the the history of of racism um and then they 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 have to confront the reality of immigration taking some jobs, say so yes, that's understandable, but again, that doesn't map on to richard spencer right and and
1: no no and i and I wouldn't want that person to go remotely near white identity politics as a response yeah um, yeah. It's just that it's just it's 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 it seems to me more likely that people are going to be pushed in such a direction, if you sustain for too long the idea, as I say, that everyone has that right other than them. Of course, and that's what I see happening. I mean, by the way, just a, a thought. I mean, this all these things, the context of these things, in a way, reminds me of that really interesting thing some years ago. Our mutual um, friend I, I, th- I think I can say friend um, certainly in your case uh, um, somebody I admire very much uh, Richard Dawkins uh, it was, uh, some years ago do you remember in an interview talking about um, uh, children he didn't want you know he didn't want people to be called um, I don't know Christian children they're just the children of Christian parents and so on your listeners will probably be very familiar with this point there was this really interesting point when Richard in one interview said you know there's no such thing as a Christian child there's no such thing as a Muslim child and then he, he stopped himself he stopped himself because he was about to say something he knew he, he didn't want to say. And he acknowledged it. He said, I don't want to say there's no such thing as a Jewish child. Now, why do you not want to say it? Because, because of the echoes we all know about this. And this is just it, that, that is a horrible thing. And he knew it and he, he pointed to it. It was, it was fascinating. And that's the same. It seems to me slightly with what's going on with the, what the identity politics thing we are, um, tolerant of, of the black identity politics because we recognize that within living memory the uh, black communities particularly in america had legitimate grievances and legitimate cause uh, to have an identity uh, um that they that they marched on as it were um and we're also aware that in living memory uh, uh there were you know white people in the south who 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 you know lynched people and because of the color of their skin so, so what we're doing is is getting around and, 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 and coping with the sharp corners of not that distant history. The thing I think that's so, that's so worrying about it, though, as I say, is that I hear almost nothing of mending this. I see only, and I hear only in America, people staking their careers and their, and their livelihoods and, and, and their, their entire occupations are making this worse. People claiming it's never been so bad people setting up their own stalls in the identity marketplace and i just i mean maybe as i say maybe it's just nature of the media and of people becoming well known because they make the most outrageous statement or whatever but but i just am not hearing in america anything to do with a sort of spirit of of mending and this worries me
0: yeah well i i think one way to mend it is to make the kinds of distinctions we're making now it, it's relevant that Within living memory, as you say, these kinds of atrocities and injustices were commonplace. And, and and you, as you know, you and I point out ad nauseum, it is relevant when you talk about Islam at this moment, it is relevant what is happening not only in living memory, but in in you know our working memory entered consciousness two seconds ago with respect to the news, and to not move in the next sentence to some statement of moral equivalence with respect to the Crusades. So context matters here, and perhaps I don't need to belabor this, but I stand by this tweet. I think if you can't differentiate the identity politics of black people in America from the white supremacist identity politics we're seeing given voice in in Charlottesville, uh, you've got some moral calibration problems on your hands that's not to say that some form of white backlash against the rampant identity politics we're seeing practiced in America isn't to be expected or 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 understandable in certain cases
1: i know i mean i just i just look at all this with such horror because i you know i genuinely have thought for most of my life that we were getting beyond this and uh, and i sort of still think we are i just i just think as i say that the the standards that, that we might wish to apply, there will always be people who 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 whose careers are predicated on not applying them. I mean, you know, in my country in Britain we had this this long business with the Cecil Rhodes statues a couple of years ago. The Rhodes Must Fall thing. But you know, that whole thing really was, was whipped up by some South African students who happened to be Rhodes scholars who were, were you know, basically Appealing to an audience uh, back home in South Africa, and were, were going to make careers when they went back. Um, you just, you know, there are always going to be people who are going to do that and are going to take advantage. Look at look at one other, by the way, a little hobby horse of mine. This Anne Frank Center in America, uh, it's called Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect and Tolerance or something. It's 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 run by a couple of just activist Democrats who are standing on the name of a murdered Jewish girl who they never had, had met or had any connection to and using this dead Jewish girl to attack Republican politicians they don't like. Mm-hmm. I, I, I myself think it's, it's just grotesque beyond words. I think if they had any shame, they would stop. But they don't. They they were furthering their careers. They're really, really keen on it. You know, they they ran some kind of gay rights group and then they obviously raised were sort of it wasn't such running and so much fuel in that, maybe. And then they just decided to, as I say, grab a dead Jewish girl and, and, and run with, with um, you know, using her name. And I, I mean, I just think this is from every community and every background and every skin color and everything. You just, you're always going to have these people who who just don't want to exercise the standards because they need not to.
0: And there's also just an impressive degree of confusion here. People just can't follow the plot. So you, So you have something like, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which in the face of a Nazi rally in Charlottesville seems like an absolutely necessary institution. This is what the Southern Poverty Law Center is for, to combat this kind of white extremism in the country. But in the, in the same period, they have listed our friend and colleague Maja Nawaz as an anti-Muslim extremist. And as much as we've gotten the word out about that, you still have people like Tim Cook, the head of Apple, giving a million dollars to the SPLC in, in recent weeks. People can't cohere in a vision of what makes sense morally and politically because there, there's the, this identity politics and political correctness has just kind of cleaved our conversation about current events in ways that are just confusing to people. And, and the response to Trump. In the aftermath of Charlottesville or the response to Trump's response, it has been emblematic of this. So, for instance, I despise Trump as deeply and as broadly as I think any person I can think of. I mean, I just think he is a conscienceless monster. And, you know, I I don't need to go into that at length. I, I probably have 15 or 20 hours on this podcast of me railing against Trump. But leave it to the left to attack him in ways that make him look nuanced and judicious in the aftermath of this of this thing. I mean it's just it's unbelievable how bad the commentary has been. I mean so uh, perhaps we can parse this and before we get off Charlottesville because I think it's important. So the first point to make is that Trump failed what as many people have said is is perhaps the easiest test of moral leadership a US president can ever face, which is to condemn Nazis in our own society, right? I mean, like like that didn't happen early, and it didn't even happen to a satisfactory degree late. I mean, he just he just has never managed to articulate what is wrong with a, a full embrace of the public square by Nazis and armed KKK members. I mean, we had people marching with military rifles in a U.S. city, intimidating people. And in the context of this march, someone gets murdered in what I'm sure will prove to be an actual act of terrorism, which is to say that the person who did it wasn't mentally ill, but was actually ideologically motivated by his beliefs, his white supremacist beliefs. I don't think we know that yet. Perhaps that's been discussed in the news and I'm unaware of it, but it's absolutely the easiest possible thing for a sane and ethical. U.S. president to get up and condemn this in the strongest possible terms. And he didn't do that. So that's what people are appropriately reacting to. And in addition, there's the fact that because he's been so bad on this issue and because he flirted with these people throughout the campaign and and in the last six months, and because he's managed to give white supremacists in our society the impression that he's on their side or at least giving them cover or winking at them in some sense. It's just he's in some sense culpable for the brazenness of this emergence of of white supremacy in in recent weeks, and that and so that that's that's one point. But what the left is also doing in response to his failure here is they're castigating him for things that actually are true and make sense. And there's there's no dis- distinction here. They're castigating him for, to the same degree for points like. That Antifa were also violent, right? And they're also a dangerous organization. It's also despicable to have them attacking. In many cases, perhaps across the board, but at least in some cases, were actually peaceful marchers who just happened to be Nazis, right? But if you're if if you're a Nazi who's marching peacefully and get attacked by Antifa goons, well then your violence is actually in self-defense in that case, right? It is a morally ambiguous situation when you have these two groups in the public square. And yet he's getting savaged for making that point as much as any other point he did or didn't make. The other, th- the other thing about Trump is that, is that he, as he always does, his, his narcissism and, and self-regard bled through even in the moment of commenting on this political emergency. And so when he mentioned the, the mother of the, the slain woman and talked about how she sent him such a a nice message on social media and and how he appreciated that. It was so dripping with the focus on himself that it was just, you know, appalling. So virtually everything was wrong with how he handled that news conference. And yet the left still manages to snatch defeat from the the jaws of victory by focusing on the, the few points he was making that were in fact legitimate, or at least potentially legitimate. Unless we can learn to, to talk about these things in an honest way, what's happened now is the response to Trump's failure has been so uncritical of, with respect to these issues that the left has managed to say all of the things that make it seem like just a, a purely partisan overreaction to his failure. And so, the republican base or the the trump supporting base now discount everything that's being said about him in the aftermath of charlottesville
1: and you have of course again idiots and goons uh anti-trump appearing on all the major television stations in america saying that yeah we should uh you know we should bring down the statues of abraham lincoln and and uh and all the founding fathers and we should also blow up mount rushmore and you know i mean you get you get all those people coming out, making their short-term political uh, opportunity. If I can say so about, about this, I mean, I, um, I, I'm maybe just be, as it were, more generous in my interpretation of this. I I'm maybe wrong in it. But it seems to me there, there are two bits of the criticism of Trump after Charlottesville. The first was, was whether what, some of what he said was wrong or right. And the other one is whether the timing was wrong or right. Now, it seems to me that self-evidently, the timing was obviously wrong. You don't do a moral equivalence thing after somebody's been killed. You just come out and condemn the people who did the killing, and 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 so on. Um, the the problem is that that, that uh, the, I think there is probably a legitimate sense of grievance among some people in America about the fact that that, as it were, in terms of this anti-far um, violence and so on, you're not starting from a level playing field. I mean, the so-called anti-fascists in America. Are allowed to just go onto campuses and burn them down and, and 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 smash everything up and still be called anti-fascists. People who are actually the closest thing to fascists until you see the people in Charlottesville. And and that just doesn't get the that doesn't get the the, the condemnation and so on. So I imagine that what Trump was thinking was, I'm not, I'm again, I may be being generous, but but my my impression would be that he was thinking, I'm not giving them that the so-called anti-fascists are indeed all anti-fascists and that everyone they call fascists are fascists. But this is, again, this is a breakdown of the, of the terms. This is a, as a result of the overreach. I mean, again, if, 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 you, if, if the Southern Poverty Law Center is allowed to designate churches that don't agree with gay marriage as hate groups, then we're already slipping. If Charles Murray is allowed to be called a fascist, and allowed to be drummed off a campus and a, and, a, and a female professor he's with assaulted, and it doesn't get any sympathy or care or concern, then we're already slipping down this problem.
0: I'll give you a couple of examples that strike me as fairly egregious, which make your point. And this is, I haven't really taken stock of who is guilty here, but they're, you know, very prominent people who you and I respect as journalists in every other context. But people tweet photos, you know, from D-Day saying, you know, alt-left rioters, you know, attacking fascists or something like that. It's like, so, so making fun of Trump's point. And so the, the suggestion is, is that the people who were, the, the Antifa people or whoever, whoever they were, who were fighting the Nazis in Charlottesville were the, the moral equivalent of our soldiers during World War Two.
1: It's terrific, isn't it? I mean, it makes you it also, by the way, how how cheap and easy is it? I mean, you know, the soldiers who stormed the beaches at D-Day saw their friends and comrades shot down beside them. A, a lot of them saw things they'd never forget and went through unbelievable things. It, every single person there that day had a courage that, that most people in our generation, thank God, will never have to even try to summon up or imagine. And here are these people who just have to tweet and they make themselves feel like the moral equivalents of those people.
0: Again, I, I mean, I've said enough against Trump to hopefully never be condemned for failing to detect any of his moral or intellectual lapses. But in this case, I will give him the benefit of the doubt and follow you there, and and imagine that he was just trying to be fairly scrupulous about the blame that existed on both sides and how and what a danger this represents to civil society where you have people, you know, members of the KKK and, and neo-Nazis marching with a permit, right, which is something our First Amendment protects, and they're getting attacked by the people who show up to protest. Now, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that ran both ways. Perhaps there were neo-Nazis who were doing the attacking first. But still, you can't attack members of the KKK and Nazis just because you don't like them. I mean, that's it. like if, if you are using force first, you are the criminal in our society. Now, you might want to rewrite those laws. You might decide that, that at a certain point, Nazis shouldn't be allowed to assemble. You might want to follow Germany and pass laws against Holocaust denial or the display in the swastika. I don't think you, you do want to do that. I think, I think our First Amendment is the right way to go here. But given the laws uh, and the norms of civil society, you can defend much of what Trump was saying there. What you can't defend is, his, is the man and how he has practiced politics up until this point and the dog whistles he has given to racists for now years. And so the context matters and and, uh, and that that's what's misleading people here.
1: Can I can I make two two points there? Well, the first is uh, this comes down to a consistency point. Um th- this reminds me of a of a of a very important issue that has come up uh, in my country uh, uh, all sorts of times. What do you what, what do you do about a collective group of people uh, or a um a voluntary organisation of people and where do you draw the line between um uh, claiming they're all responsible for something or not now you you'll see where i'm going here but let me give you an example um i don't think i would it, it, there, there are there's a mosque in uh, in um, not far from where i'm presently sitting that's that's run by a, 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 a among others a somebody who's a mil- former military commander of hamas okay um i i would not say you know that everybody in his mosque was a terrorist or that everybody in his mosque was Hamas, or even that everybody in his mosque was um, sympathetic to Hamas I just I just would be very careful about that for all sorts of reasons, some legal, some just practical, and some to do with just not wanting to imply to all sorts of members of the public that you know that whole place is filled with terrorists because there are consequences potentially of such speech. now. I I would like to think that it was possible to be consistent on that sort of thing. As I understand it, Trump seems to have thought and I don't know whether this was the case or not that there was a there was a protest uh, um uh, happening and then the KKK and the others show up and so on. Now, that there are lots of other cases of that. Um stop the war coalition marches for instance. You start to stop the war coalition march and then Uh, some people come along with a load of stuff that like hates the Jews. To what extent can you say, okay, everybody on that march hates the Jews? I I I think you can't. I think you have to say, look, it attracts those sort of people. So what can we infer about your cause, for instance? But I think think in order to be, you know, uh, in order to try to think our way through this, I think we do need to have some kind of consistency on that approach. And I think that There is a deliberate desire to say in certain directions, actually, I need these people all to be fascists or all to be Nazis. And I reckon, you know, I mean, I can't foresee a situation where I was on a march and was marching along and a bunch of people with swastikas were beside me and I was okay with that. Okay, so but I mean, it's the sort of scenario that we've we've seen, as I say, in similar situations. And and one of the one of the big problems in this, it comes back to my point about the so-called anti-fascists, is, as I've said many times, they desperately need fascists. And the bar for describing people as fascists is commensurately low as a result. And this comes down to, oh, the second point I wanted to make, is there's, a, there's a, a member of the cabinet here in Britain who I'm a, a great admirer of called Sajid Javid. Um, he's been in the cabinet for some years now. He's a conservative MP. And he um was among others of th- th- among our politicians in Britain who immediately sort of leapt on uh, um you know the Charlottesville thing and made public pronouncements um uh, um now he said uh, uh in a tweet, I think it was, you know look it's not hard i'm, I'm abbreviating um it's not hard um you know we're against fascists we we support anti fascists you know, I was taught that in school <laughs> this this sort of niggles at me because." I just don't think it's as easy as that, and I think a lot of this is, as I say, short-term political opportunism, and um, and a desire to uh, look. I mean, I mean, as I say, who who doesn't find it easy when the KKK come along to condemn them? I mean, well, it turns out some people do. But it turns it, turns that, out the that,
0: president that, of the United States does. That,
1: that, that should be like, that should be a straightforward. One. The one that concerns me are all the levels beneath that, including people who can just willfully be described as, uh, I don't know, fascist. I've just seen too much of the kind of finger pointing and fascist claiming. And, and I know, and as I say, and, and I know that, I mean, just vast numbers, it seems to me, of the self-described anti-fascists are just very obviously fascistic. And so I don't see the same simple view of this. I think that, I think there are fascists and there are Nazis. and. I think the KKK fit that bill. And I think the photographs I saw of a lot of the people in Charlottesville absolutely fit that bill. There is a neo-Nazi, can't be clearer. Uh, there's a, 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 you know, a white supremacist, can't be clearer. There's an anti-Semite, can't be clearer. But, uh, but there are, it seems to me, a lot of people who, who basically then want to use that opportunity to widen the net and, and just take in, you know, their enemies, And there's a lot of that going on. And as I say, I mean, look, it's your country. I don't have a dog in the fight. But it just seems to me that if there's any way through this, it's just to have some kind of consistency on this.
0: Let's come at this through another lens here, because this is something I've been wanting to talk to you about. It's really the same problem. And this falls very close to home because it relates to you directly, and 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 to really anyone in our line of work, making comments such as we do. So take the interview you did with Stefan Molyneux. I don't know if you recall that, oh, yeah. but as I watched that recently. Now Stefan is a prominent YouTube commentator. He's got a, a big online following. He's constantly hurled at me by his fans or our mutual fans as someone I should talk to, and he is someone who I've avoided because i have i have decided that his connections to actual racists and crackpots are too direct for me to be comfortable to talk to him but now you either thought differently or just don't know as much about him as i do and so you had a perfectly congenial conversation with him
1: i thought i had a conversation yeah and there were
0: there were a few glimpses of of his Fascination with race that came out in that conversation, which you didn't pick up on or didn't react to. At one point, he he dropped on you, well, you know, and what do you do about the fact that the average IQ in Africa is seventy or something? And you just, you know, took the other end of whatever point he was making and and kept going and didn't comment one way or the other. But I'll just point out how dicey this situation is for you because you have a a perfectly congenial conversation with Stefan. And just one click away, I can find Stefan having a perfectly congenial conversation with Jared Taylor, who I don't know if you know who Taylor is, but Taylor is just a straight-up racist white supremacist, as far as I can tell. He, I don't think, would totally own those, those terms. He wouldn't apply those terms to himself. But if you see what he says in, when, he's, when he's on his home court, Actually, no, I'll do him the the, the favor of taking this one note away. Maybe Jared Taylor isn't as straightforward a racist and an anti-Semite as you can find, but you can find him talking to a perfectly straightforward racist and anti-Semite and having a perfectly congenial conversation, finding nothing to disagree with. So
1: That's interesting.
0: We're a couple nodes away from the KKK here. That's the orbit you and I have found through these kinds of topics where where being condemned by association being condemned by the fact that you didn't find something to stridently oppose in a conversation you had perhaps the one conversation you will ever have with a specific person condemns you to complicity and that, and I'm not quite sure how we get around that because I, because I will be faulted for not talking to to Stefan by many people who are who are listening but I can see what was wrong with you talking to him, and and that's uh, I'm not quite sure how we, we split the difference there.
1: I uh, well, I, the, the truth is I don't know very much about him or did anything particularly. Uh, but I mean, I'm always very happy to have rather promiscuous in the um, the extent to which I'm willing to have conversations with people. Um, I that's interesting you say that. I that 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 one point about IQ, by the way, that that I do remember that and that that um, did stick. Um, I didn't pick up on it because first of all I know nothing about discussions about IQ and so on I just it's literally something I know nothing about and the second is I, I absolutely refuse to get involved in discussions about IQ and race and have never even read read about it because so there
0: you've been even more careful than than I am because I've I had Charles Murray on my podcast uh, I have said multiple times and I said it in that podcast that I don't see the point of doing this research but i'm not disputing the data that exists i'm not going to lie about the data that exists and the people who defame murray are, are are on balance lying about the data the problem with stefan is that there's this glint of fascination in his eye around this topic this is a kind of moral pornography in his world that when he's talking to people like jared taylor comes out as a full-blown fetish of race difference and you know i'm not you know i don't share that at all and i don't think this is you know that racial difference is something that in general is worth studying no i
1: i have to say I have but it's say, also not
0: worth lying about right. it, and and there are relevant i mean there's you know disease profiles that that right. that we want to know about and when if you're studying intelligence genetically you will stumble upon genetic differences between people, and and if you're studying it environmentally, you will stumble upon environmental differences, and and so we we have to get out of the business of lying, but we also have to get out of the business of not noticing where people have a moral concern and a political concern that is in fact dangerous and ethically repulsive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, no, I take that on board. I, I I share your view on the thing about um, uh, IQ and so on, and that that's. That's very much my view. Is um I don't quite see. I mean, I don't quite see why people. I agree, you shouldn't lie on what you discover and so on. And people are welcome to investigate whatever they want, obviously. But I myself think it goes into the category of, well, well, what would you do about that? I mean, and that's why I avoid it. Cause I think. I think. Well, what possible conclusions can you come to? I mean, on that. sort of, And. Um, but just if I may say so, i mean on a general thing i mean, as i say i'm I'm very willing to have conversations with 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 pretty much anyone i'm I'm pretty hard to find somebody I would sort of no platform um i've had as we've 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 said before discussions with a, a, a such a wide range of people including people that you from every imaginable direction wouldn't wouldn't be willing to um sit down and talk with uh you know including people who've then gone to prison for terrorism and so on and i I do generally think that that it's it's worth having as wide a discussion as possible and i thought that part that moment uh, aside i thought that it was a very interesting conversation with uh, stephan molyneux um and and i tell you what i'm maybe maybe you're slightly more um um you you're, you you've got greater senses about this than i have uh, senses with an s um but i think there's a game of um He danced with her and she once danced with him and he danced with him and, you know, and so on, which I find to be a sort of a pursuit of the Internet, which doesn't really attract me. I'll tell you what, it's just I find there are a lot of people who spend their lives these days talking about people who they don't talk to. Um, Maybe it's the experience of being on media and things a lot in the UK and elsewhere that, that you meet your you meet people you disagree with a lot. You meet them in green rooms. You meet them beforehand and afterwards. Sometimes you have to have dinner with them or a drink or whatever. And you have to find a way to civilly interact and have differences. And I, I'm for that. And I notice that a lot of people who don't do it uh, urge other people not to do it, as if by some grand process of hygiene arrangements, um, uh, uh, we could all agree to only speak to certain people on the list. And um, I don't know that's just generally not not particularly my view there are obviously people I look forward to speaking to uh, and others who I very much don't but 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 i I'm not sure that that sort of degrees of of separation thing is
0: it's not so much a matter of whether you speak to them it's a matter of what you say when you do so and again i I think I don't know if we've spoken about this but I've certainly mentioned this on the podcast I think there's a kind of uncanny valley of moral distance are you you familiar with this phrase uncanny valley no i love it okay it's it's a great phrase which i i use all the time but i don't know if it's fully been exported from the tech world so it's, it's a tech phrase that refers to robot technology and in particular robot faces so that we have in the beginning when you make very primitive robot faces they're very cartoony they're cute they're kind of these bubbly little you know faces that There's nothing scary about them necessarily. But the more you make them like human faces, the closer and closer you get to a humanoid face, you get into what's called the uncanny valley, which is, it looks very human-like, but still not quite human-like, and therefore it's uncanny, it's creepy, there's something alienating about it. And it won't be until we get a perfect copy of a human face that makes the right facial expressions. we'll get out of the uncanny valley and be in the presence of something that we feel comfortable with so there's a, a similar structure to the sort of moral opprobrium or moral distance issue with with respect to talking to people so for instance if i decided to do a podcast where i talk to charles manson or even somebody worse give me the worst serial killer in the world if i want to talk to him and do a podcast I won't have to spend any time articulating my moral disapproval of his actions. I won't have to lecture him for the first ten minutes saying, "Well, you realize just how awful it is to be a murderer, don't you?" I could enter it purely as a journalist or as a an anthropologist, just wanting to understand what it's like to talk to an evil person whereas if you if you bring someone much closer to me you know but still someone who has done obje- or said objectionable things. Well, then now we're in the the uncanny valley where the burden is on me to differentiate myself from this person. You know, if I I wanted to talk to the Unabomber, it would be interesting. But talking to someone like Jared Taylor will be viewed as irresponsible because he's just this racist who's using every opportunity to, to promulgate his racist ideas. And if you have a happy conversation with him, as someone like Stefan manages to do, well, then it says something about your lack of, of discrimination, and that's, that's how this becomes a kind of transitive property of moral weirdness, because you talk to someone who could talk to someone who could happily have tea with Hitler, it rubs off on you by transition.
1: Sure, but I mean, uh, I mean that can go, that, that goes in absolutely every, every direction, and I think, I, I mean, let me put it another way. Um. There are lots of people uh, from I mean, I think, you you know, you identify as being on the political left, you're kind of unusual, in that most people on the political left, these days, don't want to take on the issues that concern me very much. And they not only don't want to take them on, they, they, they actively want to not talk about them. And so I mean, I would, I would love it if I mean, I don't know what, you know, prominent leftists, particularly in America, that your listeners would know, I would, Be able to single out, but you know, I'm. I'd be very happy for various podcast people and interviewers and so on in the American left to have more prolific and promiscuous conversations with me, and uh, would would you know reciprocate at a drop of a hat. I I I wouldn't feel like I was then responsible for all their views about anti-fascists or their feelings about Venezuela, or the government of Cuba, or um, the Gulag.
0: I guess if the conversation turned to the topic of Venezuela, you would be remiss not to point out your disagreement with this person about, you know, how great Chavez was.
1: Yeah, but I mean, unless it was, unless it was the point of the interview, as it were,
0: you might miss it. You know, I
1: accept that people kind of have People have different views. I mean, I don't know. I, I I have to say we are in an era where it seems to me that people are narrowing and narrowing all the time the things that they are willing to hear or the people they're willing to talk to. And I have to say that just generally, I find the opposite. I find myself being more and more interested in just hearing as wide a range of opinion as possible. And speaking to people, I gen, genuinely do find that I, I have conversations as it were, off record all the time with people who believe the most extraordinary things. And you meet them in your social life and you meet them in your work life and so on. And I find it fascinating to say, what do you think? And and listen to them and accept that I'm not going to change their mind there and then, but, um, you know, I might even gain something from it. Uh, I just, I, I am genuinely in favor of as, as wide a discussion as possible on this. And recognize I live in an era where increasingly uh, we are becoming like the people we used to dislike, and um, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a mania in the air about this sort of thing these days. The same mania that leads people to behave, you know, like people they would normally despise, and 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 hit statues with their shoes and spit on, on bits of you know masonry, and 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 behave behave in really really strange ways. And I think this is all very, very unhealthy. I think it's all societally very unhealthy.
0: So how far would you take it, though? I mean, if, if Anjum Chowdhury had a podcast before he was sent to prison, would you have gone on it and had a, a perfectly cordial conversation with him about areas where you just happen not to disagree?
1: I actually when Anjan Chandra was out, I, I interviewed him once uh, fairly um amicably. Uh he shook hands with me, wouldn't shake hands with my female colleague, but uh um it was very interesting. I wanted to know what he was doing, and uh, it was very useful. Um we we had many interactions uh where we had where we were put forward to sort of as it were spark against each other and, and did. Um but uh, but by the way, I mean again, I mean one has to be careful. He he has gone to prison for recruiting people to join a terrorist group and go and kill people. And so far as I know, nobody uh, that you know that nobody in the well, the, like the person you just mentioned, Stephen Bolny or anything, anywhere like that. And there's a there's a there, there again, one has to be very careful because. Uh, I know you just, you know, you rightly seize an example that's uh, kind of extreme, you know, but um, but that's, uh, th- th- you know, that that's it's a distinction that matters. Oh yeah, uh, um, certainly. There. And but as I say, I mean, I just I think generally that uh, I I think there's a game going on that um, you can distinguish obviously, and you can draw inferences, but. By the way, sorry, just a, a quickie. I noticed the, there was a really interesting one. Do you remember the, the uh, talking about a, a mutual late friend much missed by both of us, Christopher Hitches? Uh, do you remember that business with Christopher and um, uh, David Irving?
0: It was, it was a little bit before my time with Hitch, but yeah, I, I remember some of it, certainly. So
1: Chris, Christopher um, thought that, that, the, that David Irving, who was for a time a well-known historian of Nazi Germany, uh, then turned out partly because of a libel trial that then became famous to be not just a historian of Nazi Germany, but, you know, a Nazi historian of Germany. Which
0: <laughs> yeah, the syntax matters there. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, famously in, in court, actually, when trying to prove he wasn't a Nazi or or no that he wasn't a Holocaust denier in court at one point, addressed the judge in a moment of fluster as mein Führer, um, giving a <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the peter
0: sellers moment memoir. of the trial yeah.
1: <laughs> i'm told that in the recent film it wasn't used that, that uh-huh. it should have been anyhow um uh, uh but but it was an interesting one because christopher uh um thought that there was a sort of uh, you know thought that dave irving was a, a a good historian which he was thought to be for a time uh thought there was a sort of speech issue about him i'm simplifying it was a complex and long episode but actually invited David Irving to come to his uh, apartment in Washington for a drink. And for a long time afterwards, there were some people who just used this against him as, well, in fact, somebody, I think Christopher once had to sue for libel for saying this made Christopher a Holocaust denier. And in reality, what had happened was that Christopher had invited David Irving for a drink, uh, respecting his books as he did, and uh, not knowing some of the later stuff and the directions in which he ended up going. And then, uh, and having invited him for a drink, discovered that he was slight, there was something slightly off about him. And he, he wouldn't have invited him back for a cocktail again and didn't. But, but these things, there's a weird way in which these things can linger and again be used in a way that I just think doesn't take into account what I regard as being the normal process of human interaction, of speaking to people, working things out. Not sure I like the cut of his jib. Not sure I like the turn of that thing she said, and and this is how we go through our lives. This is how we make friends. This is how we we form ourselves. And we don't form ourselves by not speaking to anyone who isn't 100% ideologically aligned with us, and and like holding these weird lines because that's that's just where you get into what I regard as being the the direction everyone seems to me to which is increasingly spending your life trench warfare with almost the whole world.
0: So I, unless there's more to say about what's happened of late, I think you and I should talk now about the topics we didn't get to touch last time around. So to remind everyone, you've written this wonderful book, The Strange Death of Europe, dealing with the immigration problem and the assimilation problem. and you have concerns about the erosion of Western values, or, or at least the, the, the erosion of, of the will to defend Western values. And ironically, this is a, you know, something that gives some sympathy to Trump insofar as he can be said to be fighting for Western values, at least on this front there's a much that we didn't talk about there that we may view a little differently. So perhaps you can start us off and and just articulate your concerns about uh, what could be lost or has been lost in secular culture with respect to a willingness to defend what is in fact the moral and, and intellectual underpinnings of the West.
1: Well, this is a obviously a huge issue it does tie into some of what we've talked about uh, already in this podcast as well as in previous uh, um ones by the way if i can preface this with something that it, this um this book uh, the most recent book of mine the strange death of europe subtitled immigration identity and islam um it's um it's got a lot of notice in my home country in particular in britain um and it's got a, a lot of praise if i say so myself and it's got some criticism but you know, the most, the the single disappointing thing uh, has been that none of my critics have picked up on this issue, which you've now opened up, um, or taken me on on it, or even sort of thought it's worth going into. And this is a genuine disappointment. Um, and I hope it changes, because I think everything to do with immigration is obviously there's a wide ranging debate. We have a long debate. We have, you know, a deep and wide public debate on it actually we have almost no public debate or any meaningful public debate about this what i regard as being equally big if not far bigger problem and question which is over um ourselves our beliefs our values and where we find meaning and uh i think this by the way this failure to address this and to tackle this is is in part a demonstration of um, of weakness, uh in fact a weakness which I continuously diagnose. Just to, I mean, I suppose to to sort of roll it back to its its beginning I, I, is to reflect on something. Actually, a student, a, um, a young um, inner city student uh, in a, in a school in, in in England, who happens to be from an ethnic minority, mentioned to me recently, which was just mentioning in passing that you know get taught in school these days a, a bit about personal hygiene uh as i'm talking about on top of the subjects you know maths and arithmetic and all the other things which fortunately people still do learn uh but but we get, he said you know we get we get a bit about um personal hygiene and so on and we get a fair amount on sex education and how to have safe sex and not get hiv and so on but um we don't really get anything about what we're doing
0: here <laughs> in life you mean yeah <laughs> in life. on is Earth. This
1: all about? what are we doing and um i i've heard variants of that quite a lot and i've heard that among teachers and parents and so on as well as among um young people themselves and i i think this is fascinating because i i think it takes a while after very big ideas emerge uh i mentioned some of them in my book the obvious the and, post-Darwin in particular, it takes a long time not just for them to seep through society but to work out uh, their consequences and to see their consequences. And uh, I think we're living through the consequence of a whole range of ideas and a whole range of things, which I don't dispute or or, or I'm not dismayed about, they just happen. strange that we're very unwilling then to address the situation of where we as a result actually are. And uh, I'm I'm myself profoundly nervous about the position we find ourselves in. In what for better or worse, one might describe as Western liberal democracies. I think it comes from several things. One is one is that people have become not just incurious but blasé about how we got to this stage um, of where we're at. And the second is that they actually they actually are quite happy to know about it, but where they do bother to make any inquiry, to reverse engineer, to get themselves the position that they think they're in, anyway. Let me give you a very quick example. Um, now, I think it's pretty, pretty unexceptional to say, as Larry Sevintop did in his, I think, terrific recent book, "Inventing the Individual," um, that that a lot of the, the, basically the the whole system of rights and values that we we currently live in. Significantly, not in its totality by any means, but significantly drives from the faith which um, which our societies used to hold and which were to a great extent founded upon. I think this raises, among other things, this profound question of whether or not the thing that we currently are and the things that we enjoy um, rely on roots we no longer hold or want to sustain, or whether they are, as it were, self-supporting and the obvious reason the obvious example by the way which which i think is is at risk is the um is the whole notion of the um of the individual and of the individual's rights the what one derives from a sort of judeo-christian concept as the sanctity of the individual i, I think it's taken as read by most sort of progressive you know people these days in the west that the human person is an inviolable thing to which nothing can be done or you get hauled before some kind of tribunal and um i just i think that's not the case and i think we've we're in a we're approaching at some point a really difficult pass with this and uh, i just i want us to think about it
0: yeah yeah well i guess there are two points i'd like to pick up on there one is just there's a difference between historical contingency, I mean, just the the path we took through history to get where we are now and whatever can be said to be optimal about the source of of specific ideas and policies or or the ideas that would make the good things we want out of life more easily secured and durable. And so just to break this down, you know, it could be that we owe a lot to Christianity in tracing this path to the present and the conception of the individual or the various norms of, of civil society that we we now uh, want to defend. Um, I, I think that can be exaggerated. I, I mean, much of what's good in, in the West, I think we have achieved despite Christianity rather than because sure. of it.
1: I don't, I don't dispute that.
0: But um, even if there were, if you could draw a straight line from Christianity to some very good things that we want to defend, that doesn't mean that Christianity is currently the best defense of those things or or the only conceivable source of those things. And I mean, so my so my heuristic here is that even when you, you can point to good things that people get out of religion, I would argue that those things are, are almost never best gotten out of religion.
1: Sure. And and of course and of course it certainly doesn't make them true. Right. So it doesn't make the, doesn't make the
0: religion, religion true. true. Yeah. No. The, yeah. So, I mean, Jesus need not have arisen from a virgin birth or be coming back to raise the dead because you can point to a long list of good things that people have gotten out of Christianity.
1: Uh, we, uh, we've got an amazing amount out of ancient Greece, but we don't need to believe in the gods.
0: Exactly. I, I share your concern totally. And I, I think secularism as, a, as just a commitment to keeping religion out of public life doesn't give you any positive content that solves the problems you you are pointing to um you know the, the problem of meaning the problem of what to do with your life the problem uh, just a, in the best case scenario imagine a life of total abundance and, and, and you know now we have machines that can do all of the work that human beings used to have to do to survive in a few short years let, let's say that's true you know, it just it cancels the need for human drudgery, cancels the need for meaningless work, and now, now we can just, we're free to be as creative and as intellectually engaged as, as we can manage to be. Well, in that circumstance, perhaps precisely in that circumstance, when we're no longer forced to labor for our survival and complain about it at the end of the day, but we have nothing but free time, I think most human beings would confront their, their full capacity for boredom and confusion about what to do with their lives. And you could have an absolute crisis of perceived meaninglessness in life. And so we we do need to put something in place of religious dogmatism to organize human life around a sense of what is sacred, what is profound, what is beautiful, what is worth paying attention to, when you don't have to pay attention to anything, when you, when you, when all of your time is discretionary, what is life good for? I think we have to individually and collectively solve that koan. And I would completely grant you that atheism on its own and, or secularism on its own, or even humanism on its own, doesn't give you that.
1: Yeah. And, uh, um, there, there are two points I, if I can say so that the from this. One is, and actually, they both relate to what we've talked about earlier in this discussion, because I think, obviously, this 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 does and ought to connect to everything. But the first is the first is a, just a very strong feeling I've developed, which I explain in the book at some length. That that almost almost none of this can be done by warring on the past. And I suppose, and again, this might come down to the sort of small C conservatism that I tend to instinctively hold, but but the, you know, it's it. I'm it, it, I, I, I sort of feel resistance to the idea that we're going to be able to construct anything, as it were. I think it's much more likely that we'll, you know, we'll not come up with an answer to this, but we will find our way through and that we find our way through, I think, best by at the very least not warring on on the past. And that's that comes back to the issue of history, including national history and and uh political and religious history that that understand to understand a thing uh, Mm -hmm. is not to approve of it but but to find a relationship with it in britain we still have slight echoes sometimes of our civil war which was four centuries ago (laughs) that the roundhead cavalier divide in not just in politics but in in ourselves is a is a part of, of, uh, of, of life of a very an increasingly small part, but it, it's there. And our religious past is a part of it. And I, I say at one point that I, I, I propose a sort of deal as it were, that, that so long as the religions don't try to come in through the back door and impose their, um, beliefs on people who don't believe, um, and grant that the non-believers ought to acknowledge that, um, you know that the churches, for instance, have have thought about issues of meaning and and have a voice in the debate. In other words, not to not to simply uh, uh, dismiss it all, but to find an uh, to find um, harmony, uh, find a a harmonious relationship with the past, even as we've we've felt like we've shrugged it off. And I suppose the second point I wanted to make on that is that is that in the absence of meaning, you, you all sorts of things happen. I have a a longish bit in my book about the French novelist, Michel Welbeck. Uh, and he is the great poet of meaninglessness, um, a, a nihilist as well as a genius. And there aren't actually many real nihilists, but he he's one, or at least lays out what the nihilist life really is. And um, I think that it's very unlikely that many people do that. I think people find meaning in other ways and in misdirected and often in the end, uh, Very, very uh, disastrous ways. And let me give you one quick example. At the end of um, at the end of uh, Francis Fukuyama's most famous book, um, The End of History and the Last Man, he has this reading of Hegel, which you can dispute, and some people do. But um, one of the things he says, which I think is increasingly the case, is that there will be some people who end up revolting out of a kind of habit, and that they end up revolting. Uh, and that is doing sort of revolution against what is good. They end up having a revolution against what got them here. And I think there's something very uh, uh, strongly relevant about this at the moment. When we were talking earlier um, about people's um, you know, political activism and the sort of manning the barricades and so on, and the, the increasing sort of trench digging, to continue with the military metaphors, that's going on at the moment, all around us. I think, to a great extent, this is it. It's a lot of people are finding meaning in politics. Now we've talked about this before. I, I think politics is a is a foolish place to look for meaning. Um, you get some, but but not all that much. And you know, people should be slightly suspicious of a lot of politicians because they 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 they've lost something else, or there's something else missing that means that they are. They're they're going down that route for everything, uh, um, and and I think that increasingly the attitude of people is to whip themselves up into lives of meaning that are based on campaigning and revolutionary activity and barricade manning and uh, Nazi identifying and and Dunkirk beach storming on a daily basis, and that that's that's what's giving their lives purpose and. Again, I mean, I think every, obviously everything comes back to issues of meaning, but if that is the case, I mean, almost every imaginable terrible thing could be foreseen in that. Um, because if if it's actually not about getting to the truth or a better manner of organizing society, but about everything in your life, you're not going to make any accommodation with anyone. And I, I think these are all... These are all just little whispers of this thing that, as I say, the bigger question that concerns me at the moment.
0: And your concern is being focused by the the issue of of immigration and and this global phenomenon of Islamism and jihadism, because in that context, when you're talking about Islamists and jihadists, say what you want against them, one thing they don't lack is a sense of meaning. I mean, they are filled with yes. purpose. And it's this asymmetry that strikes both of us uh, and many other people as so dangerous.
1: Yes, this is it. I mean, it's my, my particular concern about this is exactly that. It's, it's Obviously, it doesn't mean that the meaning which you know, Islamists and others hold is right or true or, or even, you know, admirable in any way. Of course not. But it's, this conjunction is the sort of thing that causes huge, huge epochal events, I think. The we would have been able to go on a quite a while longer, I'd imagine, in um certainly western Europe, um in the um aftermath and the, the backwash of Darwinism and biblical criticism and secularization and all sorts of other things. Um and not have come to the i think crisis point we've come to or are coming to if it hadn't have been for this massive injection of the question which seems so certain in its answer, and uh you know it's it's um I think the historians in centuries to come will will um if they're still writing books or whatever they're doing at that point will look back at this as a um as a end of the roman empire like moment of, of of worlds meeting that just have to find some kind of they're they're going to it's going to cause a change
0: so you must have a very different picture of the fate of europe and america or the the likely fates at this moment how different is that and and what what do you actually think we will see in our lifetime in europe
1: i never want to bet specifics because i know the, the amazing thing as you know studying history any history is is the extent to which everything relies on just the most crazy whims of fate and 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 individuals and i mean you know the
0: kill the wrong archduke yeah exactly
1: and um you know it's 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 all every time you ever think that you you see something happening clearly in a pattern then you always get just blindsided and 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 knocked over uh but uh, so I don't I don't dare make specific predictions. I can just I've tried to put my finger on what I think is a whole set of things that I think are not only going wrong, but are not being thought about. And um, all I know is that that, that a massive change is going to happen in the lifetime that I hope I get. Um, and that, you know, every lifetime time. Sees change. And of course, change isn't in itself a bad thing. But the change I lay out uh, is one that I think is going to change the roots of absolutely everything. And it seems inconceivable to me that uh, in the decades to come on the trajectory we're on, it's all just, you know, going to tick along like this. I so, jokingly have said many times that you just you know, our current Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, may tell some people in society to believe a certain thing, but other people might think that God tells them to do something else, and they may believe God and not not Amber Rudd. And we are, um, we're really bad these days at understanding the profound depth and drive that people get and the meaning they get, and the fact that that has, uh, has impacts on the world around them, and it's going to have to. Um, so I and I th- the one thing I do think is I think that it's all going, it's all going up for grabs in a way which it hasn't for some decades in the West, um and that absolutely everything will end up being on the table. Um, everybody who reads history knows that. history's always like this. You, you know, um uh, if you were an aristocrat in eighteenth- uh, century France, you wouldn't have foreseen what was going to happen um it could have had no idea Uh, if you're a peasant in 18th century France you could have had no idea it's it's always like that but we have I think been in a in a in a sort of dream uh, certainly since the end of the cold war as lots of people have said and that kind of obviously history in its real sense is restarting and uh, and I mean it's going to be fascinating don't get me wrong I'm not as a historian I'm not dreading it uh, but as a as a uh, an inhabitant of the present uh, i'm filled with foreboding i have to say
0: with respect to the issue of terrorism in particular it, it just feels to me like the world is becoming more and more like israel I mean, at one point when i wrote about this or podcasted about it a couple of years ago i i, I said something like we're all living in israel right now it's just a, a, only a few of us have realized it and it's that kind of the kind of the ambient level of expected terrorism that we—it's just a fact of life. You can never get away from it. Whoever thought you could get away from it? I mean, we, you and I can remember what it was like to expect it not to ever happen, right? I mean, there's there's no reason to expect events like September 11th or even like what just happened in Barcelona, and yet I, I think we're we're meandering into a time where unless something truly radical happens that is that i you know i would say is is unforeseeable now it's just it's hard to see how we ever get that expectation of security back
1: yes i mean there's a that philip roth novel human stain i mean there's a there's a bit where he sort of eulogizes and pre 11 america really well i mean it's sort of it's a eulogy to a in America, which is obsessed by a blowjob in the mm-hmm. a single blowjob, right? right. Yeah, you look back at that time with such sort of oh, god, those were the days, yeah. Um, but and I mean, of course, everyone always does that, we always look back to the not very distant past in that way, but um, I just I, I, I just I'm as I say, the the main foreboding is not just to do with the facts I see, but the really deep unwillingness of people to think their way through this or acknowledge the 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 things I'm trying to stir people to, to worry about and to think about. As I say, I mean, just to pick up on that very quickly, I know you have probably got to come to a halt, but the um when you mentioned that about everyone in you know sort of increasingly sort of like living in Israel. I, I was in a studio in London the other night and uh very late at night and uh you know went over another of the bridges in London where uh, a terror attack happened a little while ago and uh I remember that famous phrase, you know, build um build uh, bridges, not, not, uh, not walls, you know, which people always say against Israel and things. And I, I thought again, I can't remember who it was who said it, but um, actually we've got loads of bridges, but they're all covered in walls these days. They've all got massive steel walls and barricades all over them uh, because people keep on driving trucks across them and killing people. So the bridges have got walls. And, um, the other thing that just strikes me as a sort of, as again, again, a sort of bad omen, an anecdotal bum, not very funny to finish on, I'm afraid, but I was speaking with a friend the other night who happens to be Jewish and who was, um, uh, um, mentioning to me, somebody who was involved in, uh, party politics in the UK, and mentioned what a vicious anti-Semite this person was. And I, I, I said, I found myself saying, well, you know, semi-seriously, okay, How bad an anti-Semite, you know? -hmm. We're talking because it's yeah. We're kind of in we're in that terrain, you know. Is this uh, is this the kind of anti semite who says the Holocaust didn't happen at all, or that happened and it was good, or it didn't happen as much as the Jews claim, or that it happened as much as the Jews claim, but the Jews are overusing it, or you know?
0: (laughs) Actually, I got one worse, which I've noticed that that Muslims are are uh, quite capable of putting forward. It didn't happen. The Jews are lying about it, but it should have happened. And and if we have our way, <laughs> we'll make it happen. Which uh, which I, which I <laughs> think is fine If you're lo- looking for nested horrors, I think that's that's probably the worst moral position. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I have one question about anti-Semitism for you, because I've actually I was I was surprised and also surprised to find that I was surprised by the articulations of anti-Semitism I saw around the you know at the Charlottesville demonstration and and around it. I don't know if you saw this footage, but they, one of the things they were chanting was, "The Jews shall not replace us." I'm not even sure what that means. I mean, somebody, I think it was Jeffrey Goldberg. Somebody joked online about, "Oh, actually, we were just at a meeting where we were planning about how we were going to replace you," and and uh, so it's it's funny you mentioned that.
1: I think I know uh, what they were meaning by it. Uh, this is this is why people need to speak and and read as widely as possible. There is a, I, I mentioned this in my book a bit. There is a, I make clear that I think that the migration crisis of recent years in Europe is a, is a consequence of uh, political mistakes and uh, what, what, what we call cock-up theory. It, it, it's not a conspiracy, it's a cock-up.
0: Mm-hmm, right. okay.
1: Now, I have, however, noticed in recent years, and I've mentioned this before in a piece, there are uh, people who, who take a different view. There are there have been uh, people like uh, those who happen to be Jewish and who often said, you know, I'm a Jew. I feel it, I feel international. And uh, we've always had immigration. That's why we should have loads more immigration. And that stuff uh, sets off all sorts of trails, all sorts of sparks. And one of the biggest sparks that I notice growing in Europe at the moment, and I think it's growing in America as well, is the idea that actually the Jews, um have been pushing the immigration this is not a new canard by the way and there's a second one there's a rider there's a kick behind this as well which is i mean i actually found myself recently arguing with somebody to try to persuade them this was just obviously not the point but the rider the kick behind it is but they've got a country that is only for jews and they're doing this to the rest of us this is th- i'm saying this because this is what in the fever swamps that are spilling out This is the you can hear this stuff, okay? And this is all again. This is all very, very bad news, uh and and obviously it goes without saying. Bad news for Jews first, but everything that's bad for Jews is bad for everyone next. And um but these are the these are the things that I mean. I when I saw that from Charlottesville, I thought first of all, my God, these people actually are willing to stand up in a street and make this, do this, be. Be that visible, that's them. And then, secondly, yeah, this is, um I've said this before, but the, the, I, w- I wish that there was a, a word for the opposite, a term for the opposite of deja vu, something you see, which you know you're going to see lots more of again.
0: Mm. Well, I guess the silver lining there, Douglas, is that I get to have you back on the podcast to talk about it.
1: <laughs> I hate to finish on a downer, but thank that, that you, rescued me from my gloom. Yeah. That, yeah,
0: it is always a pleasure.
1: Well, likewise, Sam, it really is. And I'm glad we covered so much uh, terrain. Well, I'm sure that both of us will get endless um, grief uh, covering it with such care.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well on that self-congratulatory note, I uh <laughs> wish you the best of luck with um your continued success with this book. It's really it's fantastic to see you getting the press you're getting and and to see you out there. It's really um it's a wonderful book and I will once again link to it on my blog encourage our listeners to, uh, to pick it up if you think Douglas is articulate. When you hear him here, you will read him with great pleasure.
1: Thank you, Sam.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advance tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.